Might hear a few curse words in this one. Just a warning. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of July 18th, 2022. On this week's show, we're going to discuss the opening weekend of the World Track and Field Championships, which were racked by controversy on Sunday over the nature of time itself. We'll also talk about the Los Angeles Angels' continued irrelevance, even as they employ baseball's two biggest stars, and the Washington Nationals possibly trading their young star, Juan Soto, after he reportedly rejected a $400 million-plus contract offer. Finally, Julia Yaffe of Puck News will join us to explain the latest on Brittany Griner's detention and why she might not be released anytime soon. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Wild and Outside, suffering some major... Scrabble-related distress and ennui today. So let's all be extra nice to Stefan today. Let's do that. But you know what would make me feel good, Josh? Is if I could read Sepp Blatter's welcome back tweet after he was acquitted of bribery (laughs) in Europe. Please. Here's what he said on, on Twitter, and I thank a listener, Eric, who pointed this out. Hello, my friends. I'm back. Still going strong. Seven years of lies have ended. Now the game is again in the right direction, or as Michel Platini puts it, you will hear from us again. I wish <laughs> you a great weekend. I don't know if that's a threat or a promise, but the prospect of, of Sepp Blatter returning to make FIFA feel bad and to make all of us feel like soccer is, you know, corrupt is really something. I feel good about seven years of lies being over. I didn't realize we were in uh, just the, the midst of a seven-year lie run. But I think the, the lie good. run is seven years historically. It's always known as a seven-year duration, sort of like locusts and shit. <laughs> With us in California, Joel Anderson, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn, seasons three and six, known for his uh, honesty. More than seven years. I think I'm reputable. I've been around for about 44. I've been honest, you know, probably about three good cycles uh, of that seven year being honest. I can't, I can't really vouch for a lot of the, the years in, you know, the 20s and early 30s, but uh, <laughs> after and before, pretty honorable guy here. This is going to be our last uh, show together for a while. So let's make it a good one, shall we? Yeah. Uh, we'll hope to see you all on the other side. Football season. You're going to training camp, Rachel. That's why you're taking... Yeah, well, you know, off. I've been, you know, not a lot of people know, I've been working out, uh, you know, trying to get back. I'm up to my oatmeal consumption to two or three bowls a day. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm walking around at about 2.15. You know, it's not the 2.15 that I walked around in in 1997, but. Uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just redistributed. That's yeah, just all. a little, just a slightly redistributed. On Sunday night in Eugene, Oregon, seven men settled into the blocks for the men's 110-meter hurdles final. It was seven instead of eight because the defending Olympic gold medalist, Jamaica's Hansel Parchment, injured his hamstring in the warm-ups. And then it was down to six when Devin Allen, who's ranked number two in the world, and also, like Joel, is a wide receiver for the Philadelphia Eagles, (laughs) was disqualified for false starting. 
The rules are that you get DQ'd if your reaction time to the gun is faster than a tenth of a second. The thinking being that it's not possible for a human to get off the blocks any faster than that. Allen's reaction time in this race was 0.099 seconds, meaning he was too fast by one one thousandth of a second. To give you a sense of the time frame we're dealing with here, it takes about five milliseconds for a honeybee to flap its wings. Joel, there's been a lot of talk about how this is a ridiculous rule, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I think we all want to know if you ever got DQ'd for false starting. I'm guessing that um, you, as the fastest 10-year-old in America, could surpass mm-hmm. the recorded human reaction time. Well, I mean, that was sort of the expectation. And I guess maybe people haven't listened to that bonus episode, because I did kind of go into this once before, that my start is actually why I can't claim to be a national champion, but instead am referred to as the fastest 10-year-old in the country because my... St- <laughs> am referred to as... <laughs> yeah, w- w- widely known widely known as the fastest 10-year-old in the country, uh, irrespective of year. But yeah... Um, I've never false started. And in fact, because of my mistake at the Nationals in 1988, my best 100-meter time is probably the result of a fast start. But I learned, just keep going, you know, like it, make them disqualify you. And I'm sure that's probably what happened. <laughs> make, them ta- make them tackle you. Yeah. Make them, yeah. <laughs> if they can catch you. Yeah. Make them bring you back. Uh, and so I'm sure Devin Allen, you know, I mean, he really caught a bad deal. And that that absolutely sucks. I've seen... I've been at a lot of track meets where people, you know, get DQ'd in the finals or in the semis, and they've really been building towards something. And it is really one of the more agonizing things you can see. I mean, I don't, you know, maybe a, a, a guy that's way ahead on boxing cards and gets knocked out, like that's something, you know, I'm just like, oh, man, you were almost right there. You were going to do it. But it's like one of the more agonizing things you can ever see because you don't even, and it's actually it's worse than the boxing because you don't even really get a chance to compete. Would you rather be the dude who got DQ'd like Devin Allen did? For the dude who somehow injured his hamstring in warm-ups. Oh, hamstring, warm-ups, no question. <laughs> I don't, because you know that you were just, I mean, especially, I think if Devin Allen could somehow have gone through the day without learning about how close he was to that start being legal, that maybe it would be better. But like now that he, now that we're dwelling so much on like the milliseconds uh, in between here that separated him from being a world champion. And I mean, that always is the case. You're always milliseconds away from being a world champion, but at least you get to compete. And he didn't get to compete. And everybody was denied. I don't even think Grant Holloway, who won, he didn't want to win like that. Nobody wants to win like that, right? No, I think all of the runners said that they that they didn't want it to go like that. And I think it was Holloway who told Devin Allen, go protest. Um, so clearly they were in his camp because... They all probably, (laughs) they all understand that this is ridiculous. I think it's, you know, whenever this happens at a race, Joel, I always kind of forget what the rules used to be. And, you know, before 2003, if you made a false start, you would get disqualified only after a second false start. And then for the next seven years, if there was a false start, the whole field would be warned and and the false starter would get a second false start. And then they changed it to make it this draconian one false start and you're out. And the reason that they did this was that, you know, athletes were trying to time it for decades, right? You try to anticipate the gun and get an advantage over the field. But there's also an opportunity for gamesmanship where you could kind of intentionally false start, mm-hmm. right. right? To try to get the whole field on edge. Throw everyone off. 
Right, throw everybody off, throw everyone's timing off, throw everyone's brain off. And so something had to be done, but clearly this falls into the category of the electronics and the the computer-generated penalties not being perfect. I mean, establishing any sort of threshold seems like a really dicey proposition, Josh. I mean, there have been studies we learned last night that have shown that 0.1 seconds is not even a, you know, a, a legit standard that there have been, that there are cases of runners who actually, the humans who can anticipate something like a starting gun in slightly less than 0.1 seconds. Um, so this is completely arbitrary. I mean, one one thousandth of a second, I mean, that's absurd. Yeah, there's some good threads that we can link to on our show notes um, by the track coach and Nike Oregon Project whistleblower Steve Magnus, as well as um, Dave Epstein, who we've had on the show a bunch of times. And I, I think the one tweet from Dave that kind of sums it up without having to get into too much of the nitty gritty is, what are the chances those blocks are actually perfectly sensitive to the thousandth for every person and shoe that sets up on it? I'm guessing basically none. And then the second point that Dave makes is, false starts aren't that completely invisible on video review. You right. at least see a flinch. And the thing that this reminds me of, Joel, um, is in the NBA, in the kind of era of, of replay, when like to the naked eye, it appears that the ball is out on a particular player. But then when you slow it down to a degree that's imperceptible to the human eye in real time, you can see that it like ticks off the very top of somebody's finger um, right before it goes out of bounds. I mean, this is even worse, actually, because if you slow it down, as we saw on, on NBC on Sunday night, if you slow it down to like as slow as this replay technology even goes, you still can't detect anything. It's just obvious in both layman's terms and to anything that we can kind of see and detect that he didn't fall start, Joel. Right. No, I mean, it doesn't appear that he did, but I mean, I guess the thing is that there's going to be, they're going to draw the line somewhere, right? And so now we see what happens when you draw to the, you know, I guess the scintilla, like, right, the the closest edge possible. And you're going to see when you have to make a rule that it's going to hurt somebody like that. And I guess the thing is, is that it, it sucks for Devin Allen. Um, and I don't like the standard that one false start gets you disqualified. But I actually don't know what the the answer is here, right? Like, this is, this is such a confluence of strange circumstances that I don't even know that you can make a rule that would make it right. There's something that would make it fair. Like, what would you all think would make this right? Because I, I, I sort of struggle with that. It's like, it may just be that Devin Allen caught a really, really shitty break, but there's nothing that they can do about it. Well, here's one suggestion. You know, there was one study, very small number of participants, but it did find that some runners were able to get off the block at around 0.08 of a second. Um, so what if you had like an intermediate level, sort of between 0.08 and point one where you don't get DQ'd and it's a restart. So you get a second chance if you're below, you're in some sort of gray area scientifically. That's not a bad idea. You know, I mean, and this reminds me but of... But it's slowing up the meat in the same way that everybody is complaining about. Like if you're going through that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously it's such a rare, a rarity that it probably can right. be 
resolve fairly soon, but it's still slowing right, things up. There'll still be a disincentive to the runners to not try to anticipate the gun and get off, but it would eliminate the sort of picayune, you know, the, this imperceptible, um, these imperceptible starts. I mean, this does remind me of, you know, of other things in sports now with instant replay. It's sort of like with VAR and soccer, you know, when someone's kneecap is offside or when a guy trying to steal second, you know, his hand is a micrometer off of the base on an overslide. But it does feel like there are ways around this, both by using more sensitive camera technology um, and by adjusting the sort of parameters for what's an automatic DQ. In this particular case, it's like fake scientificness mm-hmm. in sort of two different ways. Number one, the point one zero seems like an arbitrary standard. Uh, it's not conclusively established that that is absolutely the bright line. And then the idea that these instruments can detect anything to within a millisecond is like the second layer of, of fakeness. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Hawkeye and tennis too, where um, there's this sort of like collective fiction around the idea that these, uh, you know, the Hawkeye shows whether the ball was in or out, but it's a simulation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an actual, you know, it, it doesn't actually show what happened, but everyone just kind of from, from players to umpires to fans has kind of agreed that it's real, <laughs> except there are some cases and it's been documented where the system fucks up. And so like, what do you do then? What happens at that point? Like with the VAR thing you mentioned, Stefan, with the NBA example, um, there's too often, I think, just forgetting why replay exists or should exist in sports and games that are for entertainment. It's to correct obvious errors quickly, not to correct things that aren't even necessarily errors slowly. (laughs) And that's just, that's when replay fails. And this was definitely a case of, of replay failure, especially when the other athletes, like you were saying, Joel, didn't want this guy to be disqualified, didn't think that he had gotten an advantage. And there are also studies that show, and and you can attest to this, that your start only accounts for like one to 2% of your performance in a race like this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is important, and we do put outsized importance on it in training and everything else. Like, you, I mean, you spend a significant Just amount Just because it's a thing that you can practice, right? So you do practice it. Exactly. You have to practice something, and it is important, but you know, we can overstate its importance. But, yeah, I think all of those athletes out there, they want to compete against the best. Like, you don't get to that point in your career, the final of a world championship, and not want to face the best. Um, whether it's not you get to run the best time or maybe you might beat that guy. Um, so obviously they're not going to be very happy with that. And especially with the, such an on the, on the line sort of call. Um, yeah, to your point, Josh, I mean, we think the technology can sort of mediate these issues, right? That we think that, oh, it's foolproof. We can come in there and it'll, it'll help solve a problem that doesn't really need solving. You would have liked to have seen, you know, uh, world track and field championships step in there and say, hey, look, you know what, let's run it back. But they couldn't do that. And it just turns out that Devin Allen caught a bad one. But, you know, this is, and maybe this is really cynical of me. I don't know that this race would have gotten any attention if if that had not happened, right? 
Oh, I don't know, man. Come on, this is a guy that's going to play in the NFL. I mean, what Devin are, Allen's gotten a ton of attention because ton, he's a, a two-sports star. I mean, do you, are you, you really think a lot of people know who Devin Allen is? Maybe I'm underestimating the American self-loathing track fan over here. Yeah. Attitude, but I just I, I don't think that we would have been talking about this this race nearly as much had had it not unfolded the way that it did. I think we would have been talking about it in a way that we would have been talking about this meet, um, this world championship. You know, it's in the United States for the first time. Um, it's at this it's at this mecca of track in Oregon. It mm-hmm. is being dominated so far by American athletes, some of whom got a lot of attention at the Olympics, and this piggybacks right off of that. And, you know, as Steve Magnus, the track coach, pointed out, he thinks that, you know, this is track shooting itself in its foot. Um, that this is just dumb and it, it hurt the sport by shifting the focus away from this incredible two-sport athlete who had a chance to win a gold medal and a world championship to some dumbass one one-thousandth of a second, you know, ruling that's beyond, like, human reaction time or scientific measurement. Joel, where should we go with this next? Um, Fred Curley leads the U.S. sweep in the... 100 meters for the men. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price wins her fifth world championship in the 100. You, uh, you guys a sweep toward- of Jamaican women yeah. for the second time in two years. Yeah. yeah. What do you want to talk about? Well, I, it's tough because Frey Curley is a Texan. I'm a Texan as well. It's not um, tough. Go with it. And, you know, I think people may not have an opportunity to understand what Fred Curley, like what he's done professionally, like how difficult it is to transition at this point in your career from going from a 400 to 100 in the span of about three years um, and become the best at it. Like, it's not one thing to just be internationally competitive, run at finals, but to be, you know, at this point, you got to say Fred Curley's one of the four or five fastest people that have ever existed. <laughs> and and to do that after training for a 400 is incredible. Well, I wanted, I wanted to ask you specifically about that, Joel. Sort of explain a little bit about the difference between running effectively a quarter-mile sprint versus the explosive 100 sprint and why the training is so different. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing is with 400 runners, I mean, I guess it probably starts at about 400, 800. Like, we, at least when I was a kid, we considered 400 a middle distance. It wasn't a sprint. Now, in the last 30 years, the 400 has become more of a sprint because the people are so much better runners, right? Um, but you need length, long strides, uh, a lot of stamina, a lot of strength. It's different than the sort of the quick explosion and the quick explosive movements you need to excel at the 100. And the fact that he has all of this within his body, he has the build of a 400 runner. But I'm wondering if that is my old prejudice because Usain Bolt, Another guy who started off as a 400-meter runner and became a 100- and 200-meter runner. And so I just wonder if this might actually be the path that a lot of track coaches are looking at a 400-runner and they say, you're really elite at this, but you know, you've know you got now the build. We could turn you into a world-class sprinter. Um, obviously, everybody's not going to be Usain Bolt or Fred Kirtley, but um, it does seem to, there does seem to be a blueprint now for like what an elite 100-meter runner is and a 400 background probably may be a part of that going forward. That's interesting. So he beat Marvin Bracey Williams and Trayvon Brumell. Oh, Trayvon. Um, oh, Trayvon. Uh, just by a couple couple hundredths of a second. And it was a really interesting race in that a lot of times when you're watching some of these elite 100-meter dudes and you see the replay, 
the kind of takeaway is like, wow, I can't believe that he looks so relaxed and like the kind of classic, like cheeks flapping because they're so relaxed. And then like watching the replay of that and with Curly kind of coming from behind, I'm like, wow, this guy looks like he's trying really hard. (laughs) He does not look relaxed. It looked like he was kind of muscling through it. Is that kind of what, what you saw, Joel? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it stands in stark contrast to uh, how fast he ran a nine, seven in the semifinals. And I mean, that was, it was, first of all, that's an incredible time. Like, I mean, under any circumstances, if he had went, ran what he ran um, in the semis, it would have won the final, right? And he looks so calm and so relaxed and everybody's thinking, oh, he's going to build up. Like maybe Usain Bolt's world record is in play here because the track is fast. He's feeling good. He's running faster than ever. And for him to have struggled, he had to actually earn this and catch Marvin, uh, uh, Marvin Bracey at the end to get that win, like, you know, it, it wasn't the effortless run, like you said, that 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 we would have thought it would have been. Um, by no means was he that far ahead of everybody else. And the reason I was, like, belaboring Trayvon Brumell is that Trayvon Brumell was sort of like the next great American sprinter. He ran 9-9 in high school. Um, he's from St. Petersburg, Florida. In fact, his senior year, I covered him when I was working in Tampa. And he's always been that guy. And everybody sort of looked at Trayvon Brumell to be the next great American sprinter. And he's had injuries and just a lot of bad luck. And it seemed like this might've been the year. Like he just missed it in the Olympics and he came up short again. And it just shows you that like Trayvon Brumell again, probably one of the 10 fastest people to ever have run the 100 meters, but it may just not be your moment, man. Sometimes you just miss out. And I wonder if that's what's actually going to happen to him. Cause it should, this should have been his moment, but Fred Curley came from fucking nowhere, man, and really stole it from him. And it, it's a testament to how great Fred Curley is. Like, I hope, I don't know, you know, what it'll take for Americans to really pay attention to the sprints. Um, but this guy, he's one of the best doing it and he's 27. He has possibly another decade of really great running ahead of him. And uh, you just wonder what it'll take. He doesn't talk a lot. So that may be what holds him back, but there's a lot there for us to grab onto. Uh, and he has a fascinating background story. He might be, he might be at the top of the the podium for the next decade or so. There was a funny um, little item about Curly. I think it was in Scott Cacciola's piece for, the New York Times, um, where he said, while many sprinters fill reporters' notebooks like prize fighters, Curly tends to keep his thoughts to himself. And he mentions like a reporter from Flow Track asking him <laughs> about what his plan was. And Curly says, what did I tell you last time? And then there's a parenthetical. It was not imme- immediately clear to anyone what Curly had said the last time. After some detective work, the gumshoes from Flow Track determined that Curly had said, you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. All right, we've got a bunch more that we want to talk about and that we want to quiz Joel about. So we'll continue this conversation in our bonus segment this week. Coming up next, Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, Juan Soto. Baseball. On May 17th, 2021, a guy who lives in Toronto named Matt English sent a tweet that went viral. 
Every time I see an Angels highlight, English wrote, it's like Mike Trout hit three home runs and raised his average to 528, while Shohei Otani did something that hasn't been done since Tungsten Armo Doyle of the 1921 Akron Groomsman as the Tigers defeated the Angels 8-3. A year later, the tweet has aged well. Heading into Tuesday's All-Star Game at Dodger Stadium, the Los Angeles Angels have a 39-53 record and are on their way to a seventh straight losing season, while Trout, with 24 home runs and an actual batting average of 270, remains one of the best hitters in the history of baseball, and Otani, with 123 strikeouts in 87 innings as a pitcher and 19 home runs as a hitter, remains the biggest freak in the history of baseball, bigger even than Tungsten Armo Doyle of the Akron Groomsmen, which, to be clear, are made up if excellent old-timey baseball names. Josh, here's how the Angels' 15 games before the All-Star break went. Otani pitches, Angels win. Loss, 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 loss. Otani pitches, Angels win. Loss, 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 loss. Otani pitches, Angels win. Loss, loss, loss. That's not good. No, it's not. It's not good. Not good at all. The Angels were doing pretty okay for much of the season, or at least the beginning of the season before it... (laughs) Things went completely off the rails. And this sort of parallels what I assume will be our Juan Soto conversation, which is um, it just shows how little one or two players can affect team success. Um, Because if you look at um, what these guys have done and what these guys are doing, I mean, Stefan, you collected a bunch of Otani stats in his last six starts, has an ERA of 0.45. 58 strikeouts and 39 and two-thirds innings. Um, Trout is not having his best season ever, but is having a like really good uh, standout Mike Trout-type season. And this franchise just continues to be in the doldrums. And it just... Like, the two options for the Angels are to continue to try to build around these two franchise players or like, again, what we'll talk about with Soto trade them or at least maybe trade Otani and try to extract some ridiculous amount of value for him, Joel. And then you get into the question of when you have the player who's the most marketable baseball player in the entire world who's on like an incredibly team-friendly deal for at least up through next season and is doing things, et cetera, et cetera, Tungsten Armo Doyle. Like what a ma- what an admission of complete failure as an organization it would be for you to decide that your best path is to get rid of him. Yeah, and I guess the thing is, is what, what does Artie Moreno, the Angels owner, what does he want, like... If you have Shohei Otani, you've got Mike Trout, you've got players that are going to draw people to Angel Stadium. Like, there's a reason to go, whether or not you win or not. And I, I guess I would be more curious to know the, the, an actual baseball fan, a fan of the Angels. I'm sure they would prefer to see their franchise win, but would you want it at the cost of losing those two players, one or, one or, one or both of those two players? Like, how would it feel to win with a solid team with a lot of, you know, spare parts, kind of the way that, you know, the Rays win or whatever, you know, you know, a lot of replaceable parts. 
but without the theatrics or the showmanship of those two great guys. I mean, I should say that, like, I, I think the last time I looked into it, and I don't think anything would have changed, but, like, I, I think the thing that drives attendance more than anything else is winning. Like, if if they had a winning team, um, they would draw more fans. Oh, I was going to say, so the Angels actually have a very resilient fan base. And I saw that over the last 20 years, they never been any lower than seventh in the major league baseball in attendance. But this year they slipped to 16th. And so eventually I guess people are getting really tired of this and they want to see something different. And you're right, Josh, to that point, like, I guess people want to see them win, but I mean, here's the thing. And if you're an angels fan, you have to think about this. Even if you trade Otani or Trout, um, is it maybe time to start thinking about the angels as the Clippers uh, in a way that like, you know, that maybe they're a franchise that is going to be saddled with bad ownership f- for the immediate future. And it may not matter what you do, because there are a lot of other institutional problems there in that franchise that once you get rid of those players, it's not like you're all of a sudden going to build a winner. It's not guaranteed at all. And then you may lose the one thing that you had to get people to come to the ballpark. Right. Right. Well, and I just can't fathom thinking that trading Shohei Otani, the complete unicorn of baseball ever. I mean, you know, we'd say since Babe Ruth, but what Otani has done, particularly over the last two years when he was MVP in 2021, um, he was he had a 9-2 record, um, you know, hit a bunch of home runs. This year he's already got nine wins as a pitcher, and is off the charts as a hitter again and could go back-to-back, depending on what Aaron Judge does in the second half of the season with the Yankees. I mean, you, you said Arde Moreno as an owner, and maybe that's the problem. I mean, Moreno's history is that he's willing to spend a shit ton of money on players. I mean, the the problem has been the contracts that they have given. Um, the most recent one was to Anthony Rendon, who is now 32, and they've guaranteed him like $38 million a year through 2026. And signing Rendon was viewed as a commitment to winning, finally. Um, You know, we're going to have a third star that will anchor this team and help us make the playoffs. Um, But then you look historically... You know, A, they've had difficulty, obviously, building a pitching staff and and assembling component parts around superstars, and Rendon has been hurt. Um, but historically, you know, this is a team that signed Albert Pujols to a 10-year contract, to Josh Hamilton to a five-year, $100 million-plus contract, have traded for players who have been on the downside, downslope of their careers. Um, so it is probably institutional in some ways, but to fuck this up? To have, like, the greatest player potentially, you know, certainly the greatest, the most marketable player potentially in the history of baseball is just, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, and you're not even talking about Mike Trout, who is probably the greatest player in modern (laughs) baseball history. So the argument to trade Otani is that his health is extremely tenuous and has been extremely tenuous. And so when you have somebody who's this great and this marketable, who maybe you can't count on to play as many games as you would want or hope him to play um, in a season, then maybe you can get somebody to pay through the nose and get five or six players who will help you win games. Right, and on top of that, Josh, he 
is a free agent after 2023. So there's a risk of them losing Otani for nothing. And Otani, on one or two occasions, has you know publicly sort of demonstrated some skittishness about the team's continued losing ways and how he'd like to play for a team that wins more. I would like to just circle back, Stefan, to your point that Artie Moreno is willing to spend on players. You mentioned Rendon, Hamilton, Pujols, Trout. That's the illusion of commitment. Like, that's the stuff that you're able to do to say to your fans, I'm spending money on stars. Like, But the thing that people should remember about the Angels is that they've got one of the smallest front offices in Major League Baseball, Mm -hmm. one of the smallest player development uh, programs, one of the smallest international development staff. Um, And if you look up, I mean, you can Google any of this stuff, or maybe we could put a link to it on our show page. Uh, The Angels, for for a long time, have had one of the worst farm systems in Major League Baseball. So they're not doing it. I mean, there's a top level of talent there, but they're not doing anything to supply with the supporting cast that would make it so that what Trout and Otani are doing is going to matter. Like the rest of the team, the rest of the franchise is underinvested. And so, you know what I mean? No, that's absolutely right. And and Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic pointed out in a piece um, the other day how Moreno, despite these lavish contracts on one end, has been an owner who has objected to raising the luxury tax threshold, uh, most recently during the last round of collective bargaining negotiations, because of a concern that he would feel pressure to spend to that level. Um, so there is, you're right, this is a lose, there's a, the illusion of spending a lot of money because you've dumped a ton on a couple of contracts when you haven't built the base, the front office, the team, international scouting, et cetera, or spent on the other players that are, you know, the ones that are going to help you win. So Mike Trout is in, I think, in the fourth year now of his 12-year contract, Mm -hmm. which is $426.5 million, which was at the time he signed it, the largest total value of a contract ever and the largest average annual value. And the big story in the majors um, this past week has been the report um, that came out that I think it was Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic uh, initially reported it, which is that the Nationals outfielder Juan Soto, 23 years old, rejected a contract offer from the Nationals that was reportedly $440 million and 15 years. And Soto was upset that this was uh, leaked he obviously, I don't, I don't know if he was upset that they offered him four hundred forty million dollars, <laughs> but his he and his agent Scott Boris feel like that's a really long contract. Fifteen years it would take him till he's thirty eight would be signing himself up to be a Washington National for life, a franchise that has the worst record in the majors right now, that um, is owned by the Lerner family, but the Lerners are potentially. Um, they've been talking about selling the team for the last, you know, little while. And so th- this is the, the kind of decision that you make. Do you want to get more money guaranteed to you than any person on earth could ever reasonably hope to get or spend? Or do you want, um, fair market value for your talent? And th- and also, do you not want to agree to represent this franchise or this ownership group for the entire rest of your career. Like, that's the decision that's in front of him. And Joel, I think the fact that this was leaked, the fact that he rejected it, 
is kind of an FU from the from the team and makes me think that um, these rumors that they're looking into trading him, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it's just a negotiating ploy. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing is, is if you do that, there's only, like, who benefits from that news getting out? And obviously it's not Scott Boris or Juan Soto. I mean, it's... Makes him look greedy. Yeah, right. It makes him look, and he's the mm-hmm. one that's going to have to answer questions about it, get booed in stadium, you know, whatever. If he goes through a slump, I mean, he's the person that's going to bear the burden of that news getting out there. But, I mean, if anything, that sort of highlights why he wouldn't want to sign with them, right? That they're not trustworthy. That's not how you treat somebody that you want to make a franchise centerpiece. And so it's totally understandable that he's upset and might want to play somewhere else. And so this could be what we what we may be seeing here is like the dying days of this relationship, right? Like the final days. It's going to come to an end whether or not they trade him or can't imagine they just let him leave a free agency, right? But if the Yankees don't get Otani and Soto, what are they even doing, Stefan? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing that's crazy with Soto is that he's only 23. He's under, you know, he doesn't hit free agency until the end of the 2024 season. And the Nationals... Can we just pause on the fact that he is, has been compared to Ted Williams? Yeah. And, yeah. like, his numbers are, like, in various metrics, best since Ted Williams? Yeah. And... How many great players are there in baseball now? I don't, I just, like, I'm just kind of shocked that there's another guy that's like this, right? <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a great era, Joel. Right. The, um, there's never been anybody of his talent and, and his age who's ever been traded, Stefan. Right, which is why this is also feels insane to me. Um, because the, the, the Nationals are in a deliberate rebuild. And Juan Soto, is not like, he's been with this team since he was 16 years old. And... The Nationals traded everybody. They won the World Series in 2019. They depleted their roster to start rebuilding completely. And those are givens. This isn't like a team that has struggled. This has not been a perpetual loser like the Angels have been for the last decade. Anthony Rendon was on the Nationals. Now Anthony the Rendon was on the Nationals. He was one of the players that they let go. Um, so to even be having this conversation seems really weird. I mean, Scott Boris has as the you know most prolific, successful, um, aggressive agent in the history of baseball, um, has a lot of leverage here, obviously. Um, he likes having his players test the free agent market. Um, so this all could be just an elaborate dance over the next year to get the Nationals to, you know, whether it's the Lerner family or new ownership, to get them to offer what could be viewed as actual market value for him. I mean, a, a thing that does seem plausible, Joel, is that kind of like with the what we've seen with the Durant um, stuff in the last few weeks, it's possible that no team will or could offer anything that would be close to what mm-hmm. he um, right. is worth. And so then you're left with both parties just kind of sitting there blinking at each other. Like, I guess we're stuck. Maybe we're stuck with each other or like what, I don't know what, what happens then. Yeah. You can't lose them for pennies on the dollar. Uh, right. You know, that like you've got to get, you've got to extract maximum value out of it, out of him, but it may not be possible. So yeah, I mean, I'm a person that believes that Kevin Durant's going to be playing with the Nets when the season opens next year. But like a team would have to trade so much yeah. to get him that they wouldn't, that they, you might end up like in a situation like the Nationals have now, or like the Angels have now, where like you'd have Juan Soto and like nothing around him. <laughs> right. Like, and then, right. then what do you get? Then what right. do you accomplish? Right. 
you know, unless you're the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Red Sox who could afford to give him the, you know, the biggest contract in the history of baseball and just pay the luxury tax because you can afford to pay the luxury tax. But but if the Nationals are saying we're going to trade him before he becomes a free agent and those teams are like, we'll just wait until he's a free agent when he's, Correct. I mean, it's rare in baseball to have a guy hit free agency at 26 like Soto mm-hmm. does. Like mm-hmm. you, it's usually um, later. And so you'll be paying for his prime years in free agency. It'll be a good deal in that sense. But like, so if the Yankees want to just pay him as a free agent, but the Sweet Nationals are going to, right. But is that opportunity going to, like the Nationals are going to hope to say like, all right, well, that that opportunity is not going to be there for you. You better pay you better pay up now. Scott Boer is just leveraging, waiting for new ownership to take over that presumably will have the money to spend and the desire to spend. And the, Sort of yeah, similar to the way the Mets with Steve Cohen as their new owner have been spending like crazy. Yeah, but some crypto billionaire is going to buy the team. So uh, maybe maybe Juan Soto will get paid in, uh, in crypto bucks. Uh, I, hope, I hope for his sake that he's not. <laughs> I'm just imagining a... a a very odd uh, nested hypothetical scenario. So uh, maybe we should end the podcast uh, segment there before we go uh, too far off the deep end. Up next, Julia Yaffe of Puck on Brittany Griner's situation. This week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to continue our conversation about the World Track and Field Championships. We'll grill Joel about uh, what he thinks about this year's event, and also if he's sad that track isn't more popular. I hate to see Joel sad. If you want to hear that, then you need to be a Slate Plus member, and you don't just get bonus segments on this show and other Slate podcasts. You also get to listen to all Slate podcasts ad-free, and you get the satisfaction of knowing that you're supporting our fine program. To join up, slate.com slash hangupplus is the link, slate.com slash hangupplus. Phoenix Mercury Center Brittany Griner has been in custody in Russia since February when authorities there accused her of having two vape cartridges in her luggage at an airport near Moscow. Last week, as expected, Griner pleaded guilty to the charges and said she wanted to be a role model and take responsibility for her actions. But truthfully, her plea was a necessity and part of a larger strategy to get her back to the States. Her plea will likely accelerate negotiations between the United States and Russia over a prisoner swap and possibly an eventual release. But a lot must happen between now and then, and it'll happen against a backdrop of especially fraught relations between the rival nations. Julia Yaffe of Puck wrote of her plight, It is deeply tragic for Griner that she stumbled, however unintentionally, into being Vladimir Putin's pawn. Today, we welcome Julia, a founding partner and the Washington correspondent for Puck, to the show to explain what that means for Griner. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thanks for having me. So, Brittany Griner will return to court on Thursday for another legal hearing. So, what should we expect to come of that? And where is she at this point in the Russian legal system? Well, at some point, she will probably say something during the trial. But honestly, most of this is a formality. Once you're arrested in the Russian legal system, 
everything is just a formality. You will eventually be found guilty because 99.1% of cases, criminal cases, result in a guilty verdict. And that's what's going to happen here, unfortunately. Reading your piece, Julia, which was really excellent primer on the Russian system, made me more pessimistic about this case and about what Griner is facing. Um, did you learn things during your reporting and research that made you feel pessimistic? Or were you like kind of going in? Did you sort of have the sense that things were um, going to be going this way for her? Actually, no, I was fairly optimistic going in because she is a high profile athlete. Uh, because I think the Russians pretty astutely calculated what she, what somebody like Brittany Griner means in the American ecosystem. She's a professional athlete. She is black. She is gay. All things that at this moment in American politics and culture are, you know, kind of important things. And I figured that there would be some kind of prisoner swap arranged pretty quickly. But in my reporting and talking to people involved in this, I became more pessimistic because it seems that the White House has already offered the Kremlin something, and the Kremlin seems to be in no mood to make a deal. And basically, the pessimism that I have is not mine. It is kind of reflected from the people who are working on this. It feels like there's really nothing from the American side that is going to change the behavior or, or Griner's outcome. Um, you know, for all of the NBA players, you know, supporting Griner at the All-Star game and wearing jerseys that, you know, acknowledge her and hashtags and pressure and interviews. It feels to me like there's this assumption here that pressure will help, um, especially when the government seems to have asked the WNBA and Griner's family and friends not to do anything for the first two months or so of her captivity. Um, and now that's what feels pessimistic to me. Like reading your piece just feels like all of this feels almost naive on the American side. Yeah, I think this is kind of the one of the main issues is that in general, I think Russians and Americans don't understand each other. Uh, Americans don't understand how cynical Russians are and Russians don't understand how idealistic and naive Americans can be. Um, and in this case in particular, again, we don't know if Brittany Griner was targeted for arrest or if this was just a standard kind of search and she was arrested. And then once she was in custody, people kind of figured out that they had this, you know, really big fish that they could trade for something. Um, which also, you know, while writing this piece as an aside, I just kept thinking this is so unsavory, right? You have this black woman literally in a cage and we're talking about what we can trade her for and what her value is. Um, so that already feels gross. But I do, um, and that that's a kind of a preface to say that, unfortunately, the pressure and the publicity campaign that is happening in the U.S., which is, I think, um, understandable because it's scary what's happening 
to Griner, right? She doesn't speak Russian. She really sticks out physically. Uh, she's in a really brutal system that is not that changed from the days of the Gulag. It's quite brutal and violent and, you know, rife with multi-drug resistant TB and all kinds of terrible diseases and torture and violence. And people want to get her out. Plus, there's a lot of virtue signaling, right? But all of this inflates her value in this prisoner exchange. And the more people press on the Biden administration and the more people clamor publicly for her release, the more incentive the Russian side has to hold on to her and to ask for more in exchange for her freedom. So people are talking about a prisoner swap, but maybe if this goes on a little longer, maybe Vladimir Putin could ask for some sanctions relief, you know, which would put the Biden administration in a pretty impossible situation. And again, I don't think Vladimir Putin gives a shit if Brittany Griner goes to prison for 10 years or goes to a Russian penal colony for 10 years and uh, gets beaten and tortured there. I don't think he gives a shit. But the more that Americans press and clamor for her freedom, the more incentive they create for him to hold on to her and for him to ask for an even more impossible price for her freedom. I think we're all a lot more pessimistic after reading your piece. Like I certainly was, because <laughs> I because I think we all thought like, oh well, you know, there's a, eventually there will be some sort of resolution, and she'll be home sooner rather than later. But of the Americans being held captive in Russia, or you know, people being held there, is there a cue? Like, how do people get their cases handled? there in this instance? Is it according to the length of confinement or is it really based on whatever attention that you can draw to your case? There's no path or process necessarily. Well, it's a really fine line. So uh, just last month in the same exact court where Brittany Griner's case is being heard, because that's a court that hears quote unquote contraband cases from Shiremetyeva Airport. Uh, an American who used to work for the U.S. Embassy in Russia and is now a teacher, or used to be a teacher, was sentenced to 14 years for having medical marijuana in his bag. And the U.S. State Department is like, well, there's nothing really we can do for him. And when I lived in Moscow uh, 10 years ago, there was an American who was in jail also for a long time for weed because Russia is a zero-tolerance country, even though that the, even though the FSB deals drugs, sells drugs um, illegally. Um, it's a zero tolerance country. And I remember there was an American in jail for weed and there was nothing the U.S. government could do for him. So it is a double-edged sword. On one hand, if you're a celebrity, you have a higher chance of getting out and a higher chance of the U.S. being able to do something for you. So um, it helps that the U.S. government has labeled Brittany Griner wrongfully detained. That means that there is a certain process that kicks in and certain things that the government can do for her to kind of spring her out of jail. But at the same time, the problem is that a week, literally a week after she was arrested at the airport, Russia invaded Ukraine and America led 
a massive coalition of countries that in slapping sanctions on Russia, unprecedented sanctions. And now there's absolutely no relationship left between Russia and the US. There's nothing left. The two sides don't talk. The militaries don't talk anymore, unlike in the even the bad old days of the Cold War. And, um, you know, if this had happened two years ago, or if this had happened, uh, as my colleague Peter Hamby pointed out, if this had happened under Trump's presidency, she would have had a much better chance of getting out. Remember the case of ASAP Rocky, yeah. right? <laughs> um, I think, no, but because he, Trump loved doing this kind of thing, loved helping celebrities. He had a good relationship with Vladimir Putin, uh, and he loved this kind of deal making and there was some kind of relationship there. But now, unfortunately, because of the war, there is, uh, the Americans want to make a deal. The Russians don't give a shit. Let's listen to a clip from, uh, the shop, the HBO show, um, where LeBron James was asked about the case. You being you, LeBron yeah. James, have you thought of like what, like if it was you, you travel to Europe, you do these things. Like, have you put yourself there in terms of like, man, what she must be going through, what that experience I, must be like? I, I'm, I'm, I was trying to imagine it, and it's hard for me too to even put myself into what she's going through. Like, she's such a, a great human being, a great person. Uh, obviously, I've been in her presence a few times, and you know, you always feel like, you know, if you're from a certain place, you always feel like like they got your back. And in, and in a sense, like now, how could she feel like? America has her back. Like, I would be feeling like, do I even want to go back to America if I'm, I've been gone over 130 days and, and I feel like it's been zero effort. Putin probably pumped to hear that, uh, that soundbite. <laughs> but um, I mean, I, I guess one question that I have, Julia, is um, if you're saying that it only increases Griner's value from the perspective of Russia to have celebrities kind of talk about her and to criticize the American government in this way. But also, it doesn't seem like not talking about the case really accomplished much either. And so I guess what I would say is like, people should say and do whatever it is that they want to say and do rather than thinking that it would or wouldn't have any kind of effect on Russia, they're going to do what they want to do. So we should, at least in my opinion, just continue to agitate about this as much as we want to agitate about it. I, I think that's right. I don't think asking people to play Putin's weird three-dimensional chess game, if you can even call it that, is feasible or moral. I think people should express their outrage however they want. I will quibble a bit with Mr. James. <laughs> um, I do. Th I do disagree that um, you know there has been effort on the American side and. Brittany Griner's teammates in Yekaterinburg have been doing a lot behind the scenes to try to get her released. Uh, I think that in the U.S. we often equate sound and like visuals with effort, but um, a lot of this stuff, just because we're not seeing it doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think there was stuff happening behind the scenes, but I don't think that anything can happen until this trial is wrapped up and until Brittany Griner is sentenced. And even then, I think it'll take some time. But um, I don't think we should play Putin's game. I think that, you know, if people want to say what they want to say about bringing Brittany Griner home. They absolutely should. Thankfully, we live in a free country and we can say what we want. You're one of the few people who's written noting that Griner probably did break Russian law. Um, last week, her attorney said that she had a prescription for medical cannabis, for chronic pain. Um, but as you pointed out, 
Russia's laws are pretty draconian for even minor drug possession, and that there are people who aren't celebrities who end up spending six or seven years in these labor camps. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. It's a zero-tolerance country, and there is no such thing as medical marijuana. And in Russia, and your prescription in Russia isn't worth the paper it's written on to Russian authorities. That said, the harshness of the Russian law is often an asset to the Russian authorities mm -hmm. because the more people they can catch in their dragnet, the more leverage they have to get what they can out of people, right? So, for example, the case of Nama Issachar, who uh, was a dual Israeli-American citizen who wasn't even going to Russia. She was going back to Israel from India and had a layover in Moscow, and they found either hash or weed in her suitcase. She was just in the transit zone, and she was taken out, uh, sentenced to, I believe, six or seven years in jail in the it's same exact half, court. Yeah. Seven and a half, right? And Bibi Netanyahu had to lobby his, as he said, his good friend, Vladimir Putin, and she had to appeal to Vladimir Putin and ask for a pardon. And it wasn't a prisoner exchange in that situation. In that case, the Russian Orthodox Church, which is very close to Vladimir Putin, got property in Jerusalem, which is very important to them. So, you know, it, um, even though, the, like I said, the FSB deals drugs, they are the, the biggest drug dealer in Russia. There's now a case winding its way through the, through the courts in Russia of, of a prominent FSB uh, Silevik, who, who was dealing drugs. But again, they know who's dealing drugs and they can catch them and they can extract whatever they need from them. Does that make sense? Right? Like you have dirt on everyone and you can, um, use it to your advantage. So. Right. And so you establish these draconian laws and then you take advantage of them politically and internationally the way that Putin seems to be doing here. Exactly. What I, what I will say is that, um, I do think it's unfortunate, you know, that, um, Brittany Griner had been, living and playing in, in Russia on and off since 2014. And I am guessing, you know, as a celebrity, she was in this kind of bubble. But when you live there, you kind of know that you just, you don't fuck around with this stuff. And um, because they, they don't fuck around with this stuff either. And especially if you're an American, especially if you're so visible, you're like a six foot nine black woman with dreads and tattoos, you have a target on your back. So I feel like it's extra tragic because I feel like she could have been better prepared. You know, we've been hinting around, we're talking about how bad things are. In the middle of your story, the attorney you spoke to said that they would expect in her particular case that, and this just shocked me that it, this is so casual, that a sentence of six to seven years, quote, wouldn't be a bad result. And you've, you've mentioned a lot about the intersecting identity. She has black, gay, her appearance that makes her a target. So, like, what sort of legal peril is she actually in then at this point? Like, I mean, it's a given she's pled guilty already. But, like, what is going to happen next? Well, I think she's going to be found guilty and then she's going to be sentenced. I think the, the only question is how long her sentence is going to be whether it's going to be prob probation or what they call in the Russian system a suspended sentence or if it's an actual prison sentence. And um, unless a deal is worked out right then, then she will be sent under guard to whatever penal colony 
Um, these are basically like open air prisons and she'll have to work. A lot of times in the female colonies, they're sewing. It's basically slave labor, but it's extremely profitable for the people who run these penal colonies. Um, and again, what I just can't, can't help thinking about knowing Russian society, knowing a bit about the prison culture is it's an intensely racist society. It's an intensely homophobic society and it's a very white society. So like there are just, there are not many black people. There are almost no black people in Russia and she's a giant black woman and she's gay and she speaks no Russian. And I just, I, I imagine her in this, um, prison colony where I, you know, I know women who have served time and they're just, you know, have, are con were constantly beaten black and blue or raped by the guards. And, you know, they kind of blended in and spoke Russian and knew how to navigate, like could figure out how to navigate the system. But I just feel so scared for her because plus she's American at a time of really intense anti-Americanism. And, all these identities she has that make her a target for violence make me very scared for her. And I really hope that something is worked out soon because she's not going to have a good time there, to put it mildly. Julie Yaffe of Puck wrote The Trials of Brittany Griner. We'll uh, make sure to post that on our show page. That was grim, but uh, Julia, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks. Sorry, if you're talking about the Russian penal system, it's going to be grim. Now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. So the tungsten arm of Doyle tweet that Stefan referenced in his intro to our baseball segment, uh, tungsten arm O'Doyle, obviously a fictional baseball player with a great fictional baseball player name, but maybe not so obviously a fictional baseball player because there are a lot of old-timey baseball players with no. amazing names and nicknames. Naturally, I looked up uh, the Reddit thread, what are some of the best old-timey baseball names? And someone had a list that includes players from modern times as well as old times. Oil Can Boyd, Cannonball Titcomb, Home Run Baker, Three Finger Brown, Snuffy Sternweiss, Buttercup Dickerson, Vinegar Bend Mizell, etc., etc. I stopped on Cannonball Tidcom. I only got two uh, names in there before I uh, was taken aback. Had never heard of this fellow. Um, baseball Reference Bullpen includes a uh, bio page for Cannonball Tidcom that begins Liddell Cannonball Tidcom. Pitched five years in the major leagues. Started at 0-5 in 1886. Had a 14-8 year in 1888. Blah, 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 blah. Says okay. several players during the 1880s were given the nickname Cannonball, but Tidcomb is the only one who is remembered with the name as his first name. All right, fair enough. 
then went and looked at the uh, Sabre Society for American Baseball Research bio page for Liddell Titcomb, which includes the following passage. Shortly before Titcomb's death at age 83, a curious phenomenon occurred. He was given a nickname that had never appeared in newsprint during his actual playing days, Cannonball. The moniker was premised on a likely apocryphal tale about Titcomb and his youth published in his former hometown newspaper. In June 1950, this newly coined nickname was embraced by the Associated Press and circulating an obituary for Titcomb. And Cannonball Titcomb is how our subject is listed in Baseball Reference, Retro Sheet, and other baseball reference works today, etc., dot, 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 and then the conclusion. For present purposes, suffices to say that the Cannonball nickname is highly suspect and in need of serious reassessment by baseball historians. So based on all that historical research that I've done in the last uh, 45 seconds to five minutes, I can conclude that this week's Afterballs will be named Cannonball Titcomb. Stefan, what is your Cannonball Titcomb? On Saturday night in Amarillo, Texas, a double-A first baseman named Leandro Cedeno hit a baseball 527 feet. That was 22 feet longer than any home run in the major leagues since MLB's StatCast started tracking home run distances in 2015. Cedeno hit the ball into what appears to be an office park parking lot. The shot was even more impressive because Cedeno was wearing a jersey made to look like an ugly Christmas sweater because it was Christmas in July night at the ballpark. Also, he plays for a team called the Sod Poodles. Now, I mentioned the Sod Poodles on this show in December 2019, our last pre-pandemic live show here in D.C., crying face emoji, in an afterball about MLB killing off several dozen minor league teams, including some with great names. Update. Three of my top five, the Vermont Lake Monsters, Abner Doubledays, and Batavia Muckdogs, they live on as college summer league teams. A fourth, the Rocky Mountain Vibes, plays in the Independent Pioneer League. And the fifth, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies, wound up not getting axed at all. Power of the afterball. Who knew? Had huge, huge impact in saving these franchises, these teams. Josh noticed the 527-foot home run. He did not recall my earlier sod poodles mention, which in fairness, I didn't recall either and suggested that Sod Poodles would be a good afterball name or a good afterball. It turns out that the Sod Poodles was created by the same marketing company, Brandios, that was responsible for the Rumble Ponies, as well as for the Hartford Yard Goats and the Rocket City Trash Pandas, who were the subject of a follow-up afterball that I did in January of 2020. According to the company, while researching names for the new Amarillo team in 2018, a staffer discovered that Sod Poodle was allegedly a settler nickname for the ubiquitous West Texas Prairie Dog. And I did find in newspapers.com mentions over the decades of Sod Poodle as a synonym for various groundhoggy, prairie doggy creatures. Brandios then ginned up a rationale for the name beyond that it's goofy and would lead to a fun logo and sell lots of merchandise, that prairie dogs, aka Sod Poodles, are family-oriented and stick together 
and are self-sufficient, which are, of course, important values for a minor league baseball team. The new team also pretended that there were other finalists, long haulers, bronc busters, boot scooters, jerky, and then announced sod poodles and milked the expected controversy surrounding the name. According to a piece in Texas Standard, a local Chick-fil-A put up a marquee reading, chicken tastes better than sod poodle. A local lawyer named Dean Boyd ran a TV ad with the line, You ever been in a car, truck, or motorcycle wreck? You don't need a sod poodle. You just need Dean. And a local rancher, bootmaker, and songwriter named Carson Leverett composed a song for the team, first posting a raw video and then heading into the studio. Let's listen. They ain't just like a little yippin' dog, a little bit smaller than a big round hog. They run real wild and they smile all the time. They used to be called prairie dogs, but that won't work for double A ball. And it's the bottom of the ninth and the game is on the line. They are the sod poodles, sod poodles, that's right, they're called the sod poodles. And when you come to our rough and rugged town, you might laugh and point and say, oh lordy man, their name's insane. But you won't be laughing when you get beat down. Hmm. Carson Leverett, everybody. Sod Poodles, big hit. People love the mascot, Ruckus. What's not to like? Man. I'm, I'm all in on Sod Poodles. Do you think... And Prairie, you know, Prairie Dogs would have been a fine name, but I guess a little bit. Do you think Amarillo is okay with... Uh being referred to as rough and rugged. Have you ever, have you ever been to... I've never been to Amarillo. You, you you'll been have Amarillo? to fill us in on whether Amarillo actually is rough and rugged. Uh, I mean, it fits the description. Lovely big Texan steakhouse, though, which many of you may know for its... Uh, you know, if you eat a 72-ounce steak, you get it for free there. It's that place. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's, they've got some things going, but that is actually rough and rugged activity, I'd, I'd probably what's a, say. What's a boot scooter? Boot scooter. That was one of the other finalists quote-unquote like a like a, da- like a country dancer yeah yeah boot scoot boogie dance. has a boot line scoot. dance yeah. line dance yeah boot scooters okay man yeah. um speaking of not remembering things stefan we had jason klein of brandios on hang up and listen as a guest in may of 2016 oh we did man. that's right we've been doing this show for so long that that basically doesn't count um alan siegel also did a a good feature for Slate on, on Brandios people in, in 2015. Yeah. Um, what I, I always say, Joel, what I always say, but I don't think I've ever actually said until now, <laughs> is when you when you get the 72-ounce steak for free, you're still paying the price, oh, yeah. ultimately. Look, hey, can I just tell you one good thing about that big Texan? That, that steakhouse is the place that convinced me to not get my steak done well done for the first time in my life. Oh wow! Yeah, I was that on a, a I was on a road trip. I was driving from Oklahoma City to Lubbock to cover a, a Sooners uh, Texas Tech football game. Stopped there, very nice waitress. She said, "You know what? You may not want to do that. At least try it medium." And she was right. It was really good. So thanks to Amarillo and the Big Texan, I owe you. That's a, what uh, what ounce steak did you order though? I did not get the seventy two ounce. I, even at that age, which I would have been about twenty four, twenty five, I knew that I couldn't handle seventy two. But I think it was still. Pretty maybe about twenty ounces. Very good rolls. Is you tend to have at a steakhouse like that. You know, 
Good time. I have nothing but fond memories of Amarillo. It, it was rough and rugged, but I'm not afraid of a little rough and ruggedness either. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Don't forget to rate and review that steakhouse. Probably. They mm-hmm. would probably review it. Still there. Uh, appreciate that. And you can uh, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, for Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis and Josh Levine, remember Zelma Abadi, and thanks for listening. Now it is time for our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. And we, as promised, we're going to talk more about the World Track and Field Championships. And Joel, I think you were um, interested in chatting with us about the Oregon of it all. Like first time ever in the U.S. renovated Hayward Field, the mecca of track in in the United States. Kind of how how do you feel about the event, where it is, the crowd, and and all of that. Well, there's, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. One, it, going there uh, in person and then experiencing it on TV. And I'll just say going there in person. I, have either of you ever been to Eugene, Oregon before? No. Okay. It's extremely Haven't remote. been to Amarillo. Haven't been to Eugene. What's yeah. what's kind of the, like, how big of a steak do you have to eat in You guys Eugene are missing for the, America. I mean, there, there's so much Americana. You, we really should do a hang up and listen road trip someday. But uh, so Eugene is even more remote than Corvallis, Oregon, because uh, Corvallis is closer to Portland. So you fly into Portland, drive south on the highway. Uh, and it, I think Eugene is like two hours south. Uh, so it's a little bit more remote than you'd think. And that, that's the part of it that is sort of surprising to me that you could have a major international sport event there because Eugene is not a big town and it's further away from a major airport than you'd expect. So I'm anybody that was there, I'd be sort of curious to know like what the hotel situation was like, um, you know, that that sort of thing. But in terms of watching it on TV and uh, my wife, she's new to track because of me. And she's like, why is it this as popular as the Olympics? And I mean, that all has to be a matter of branding, right? Because there are so many, when you're watching these events and they're telling you the stories and the competition is great and all that other sort of stuff, like I, like, I, w- I would hope that the American exposure to this event makes it a bigger deal and accordingly makes track and field a bigger deal. But like, have you, like, as you all watched it, did it feel big did it feel like a big event to you or not i don't know nbc it feels like has been offloading a bunch of stuff onto peacock the perpetually promoted streaming service yeah and so there was an hour of it between 10 and 11 eastern for us uh on on sunday night there were a couple hours on saturday i think between 9 and 11 eastern yeah so it feels like they're not going as kind of full bore, even on NBC, which would have the maximal incentive to try to make it into a big deal. They're definitely not trying to sell us on the idea that it's as big as the Olympics. Um, and so if, if one were to come to that conclusion, it would be entirely self-generated, self-imposed narrative on, on this event. And I think the Eugene of it, on the one hand, it makes it feel like a little bit more of like a kind of minor league mm-hmm. down home sort of event. But like, if you look at the stories, this is like Phil Knight, Nike kind of wanted this to happen, paid 
crap ton of money to renovate Hayward Field. And in a lot of ways, it's a great example of kind of what, I I mean, if you take away the fact that it's all just like a a billionaire, billionaire's pipe dream, but it's like, in, in some ways, the scale of it, the fact that it's in a place that does not need to be convinced that this is a big deal. It's at a place where people go to track and field events that aren't this big. Mm-hmm. It's at a stadium that's been engineered for maximal like crowd noise. The track is the best in the world. Um, it kind of, pr- doesn't it prove, Stefan, that these events should be where people want them and also that they can be in a smaller city. It doesn't have to be in some mega city with mega um, you know, facilities. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that. I mean, I think it adds to the appeal of an event like the World Track Championships to have it in a place where people genuinely care about it, um, as opposed to, you know, oh, I got a ticket to go. Somebody gave me a free ticket or, you know, the sponsor is handing out 600, you know, free tickets. Um, and, and it didn't look, the, you know, the stadium seats about 30,000. Um, normally a world track championship would be in like a football sized, you know, football slash soccer football sized stadium in other parts of the world. Um, so it feels certainly more cozy, but it hasn't felt sold out just looking at the, the, at the images. Um, and that could be a function of, you know, which events and which ticket session you have, you, you have a ticket for, um, but I love the fact that this is what it is. And it's sort of, to me, it sort of it, it buys into the into the belief that these events should be what they are, um, and there's huge benefit for the World Track Federation and for the sport globally for having this in the United States, regardless of whether the stadium seats thirty thousand or seventy thousand. And I think those benefits certainly outweigh um, you know, not having it in like Qatar, you know, Dubai, Germany. You know, it's like from the, the... What did Germany ever do to you? Germany didn't do anything to me. I don't know why I threw Germany in there, but it <laughs> seems like a logical place to have a world track championship. Um, and this also feels like a, a a competition, Joel, that is really American-dominated. I mean, the 14 medals... Yeah, how are we going to catastrophize about how America is not good at track anymore if they keep winning all these gold medals? Yeah, That's no. our favorite storyline. It Plus, really is. like the rest of the week, this is a 10-day meet. Um, we still haven't seen a thing most. Sydney McLaughlin, Noah Lyles, Arian Knighton, the relays, um, other field events that, that the Americans are going to dominate. They dominated the pole vault. They want all three medals in the shot put. The only way for another country to win is to pretend that they're from Sweden. That's the only, that's the only possible, <laughs> possible way to win a medal. Mondo Duplantis. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess the thing is for me too is that I'm not a baby, like, and I'm sorry for insulting people, but, uh, I'm not a baby like hockey or baseball or soccer fans or whatever. Yeah. I don't care if a lot of other people like my sport. I don't need it right. to be a big thing. Like, I, it is what it is and it should market itself as what right. it is. The people, the people that like track, I like talking about track with them. I like the places that they have it. Uh, I do wish that it was a more viable career path for a lot of people that, you know, that, um, if you were a really good sprinter that you could make money for a very long time and do it. Um, but there are people that, that manage to make it work. So 
but but outside of that, like I don't need it to be big. It doesn't have to, you know, be run at uh, you know Levi Stadium uh, in Santa Clara or whatever for it to be a big deal for me. So I, the the scale of it is great. Like, I, and I, I don't, I definitely wouldn't want to, you know, cast any aspersions on Eugene. It's a beautiful place. The climate is right. They they host these sort of events. So yeah, I think you guys are right. They like the, it's exactly where it needs to be. It doesn't have to get any bigger than that. But it wouldn't be bad if it got to be bigger. Do you also um, that that's really interesting what you just said, but hmm. um, when you talk about not caring, not caring if it's bigger, are you also like willing if people are like, I don't like track or you're like, all right, yeah, I don't I don't feel the need to convince anyone the track is great. If you don't like it, then that's whatever. I think don't I mean, you all have known me now for a little bit. of time. I think that's kind of my general approach to life. Like, I don't you know, you don't have to be I don't need anybody to like what I like for me to for it to matter, you know, I, I kind of feel like the things that I like, it's good enough on their own. And I don't care if a lot of other people like it. And in fact, in some ways, it can make it worse. Like, I mean, I just look at like what's happening to college football and like they're trying to make it bigger and, you know, copy the NFL and like, uh, you know, you see how much TV matters and it's, it's shaping the sport on its own. Like, I kind of liked it when it was more of a regional, smaller thing. It was never a small thing, but I liked it when it was a smaller thing. And so, yeah, I like you know, it's like putting crab on pizza. You know, I like it. If you don't like it, fine. Yeah. Right. I think you're right. And you mentioned Levi Stadium. I think the inclination in every other sport would be, oh, we got the world championships. Well, we can't have them in Eugene. Yeah. We got to move them to Giant Stadium. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that there's this charming backstory in this stadium named for some track coach at the University of Oregon in the early 1900s yeah. who was instrumental in, in turning track into something that people, you know, did like as a hobby, in addition to competing, um, Matt Futterman has a piece, had a piece in the New York times about, um, the Hayward of Hayward field, Bill Hayward. And the, the most charming part to me is the sentence where he says that during a, a journey to New Zealand to visit the famed running coach Arthur Lydiard in 1962. <laughs> Bowerman, Bill Bowerman, who would go on to found Nike, learned the concept of jogging. <laughs> Sounds like the the like, Anchorman, the line from Anchorman. I've just it's new. I've discovered it. It's called jogging or something like that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, it's all very charming, and also simultaneously, it's like a billionaire's bobble and, yes. and play thing. And that's the part that's going to appeal to the international track federation. Last, last question. Wait, for you, Josh, Joel. real quick. I mean, like everything, every, everything that we like, everything that we like in this country is going to require a billionaire to bail it out. At no, 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 like yeah, I'm, too, I'm right? not, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a realist there. It's just mm -hmm. like, yeah, we can't have it at the billionaire's track stadium. Let's have it at the billionaire's football stadium. <laughs> right. right. Since this is our, um, last, Show with you for a while. Mm. You were not going to be around for the big like Noah Lyles, Arian that Knight. That hurts me. Not I'm so hurt. Showdown. I, I wish I would be here. Yeah. But I will. Uh, I will text you to to see what see what you you make of all of it. My my last question for you, um, bef before you depart, is: Are you into calling it athletics? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? All the cool people call track athletics. I. <sighs> Have you ever was have you ever referred to track as athletics? No, I'm sorry, it's just track. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not uh, that. You know, I, I don't want to call it pretentious because again, that's 
something that's more common maybe over overseas or whatever. But I, I'm a track guy. I was it came to me as track. It'll always be track. But, but if, what about the discus thrower? What about the pole vaulter? Well, you do it at a track. They're not doing track. They're You're doing, doing it field. at a track though. You're doing it at a track. So you know, I mean, you couldn't. I mean, they don't hold a pole vault outside of the stadium. It's at the track. So I, it's I, kind of the inverse of the soccer football thing, where like football actually makes way more sense. Mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. A, a name for it than okay. soccer does, whereas track actually kind of, and track and field makes way more sense than athletics. Let's be honest. I'm sure Stefan could tell me about the etymology of soccer because I never even thought about like why, where did soccer actually Soccer from? came from association football, A-S-S-O-C, soc. Man, of course. Now that we've solved that, we can send you, send you on your way. And uh, thank you, uh, Slay Plus members. I'm going to miss y'all, man. I'll be back though. I'll always be, be. I'll be listening. So I can't wait to come back. Hey, I'm going on vacation too. It's gonna be just uh, Josh for man. A couple I'm weeks, him alone. Three weeks. I'm sorry. Sorry, Josh. And an illustrious, illustrious cast. All right. Don't worry, Slay Plus members. We'll be here. <laughs>